The year, 1914. The place, the coast of South America. The remnant of the German overseas navy is trying to find its way home, and the British Royal Navy is trying to stop them. It's World War I on the high seas, the last voyage of the East Asia Squadron. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hello and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 26, South Atlantic Death Ride. We're going to go on a crazy campaign today, guys. It's going to be dramatic and awesome. A World War I naval campaign that culminates in the two epic battles of Cornell and the Falklands. And I hope you guys are so, so ready. Of course, as per usual, swinging right into it, this is not just history but military history. Some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources, some images, maps, commentary will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown sailors. Let's get going. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? So this is something that a friend of mine asked me a while back. We were talking about World War II. He asked me, James, when the Germans were losing in 1945... In those last few months, when the Allies were closing in, when Berlin was being shelled, when there was no hope of victory, what kept them going? Why did the Nazis, from Hitler on down, continue fighting to the death for months rather than make the rational decision, the objective decision, to surrender and save their own lives and the lives of their men? What were they thinking? And that's a question you could apply to a lot of history. Why did they do this dumb thing? Why did this person make this inexplicable decision? What compels people to do something illogical, irrational, against all reason? Like fight to the end rather than surrender when they have the option to surrender. Like Hitler and the Germans did in 1945. Our story today isn't that story. But it also kind of is. Today we'll be talking about a naval campaign from World War I. This is the story of the East Asia Squadron, the pride of the Kaiser's Navy, and its desperate effort to escape the British and get back to Germany. This is a drama that unfolds across thousands of miles, with big steel warships blasting away with massive guns on the high seas. We've got chase scenes, big battles, drama, tragedy, we got everything. It's a great story. And it seems like a very simple story, right? Big boat go boom. But you guys know me. You know I'm not going to tell you a story that doesn't have a point. What I'm looking at today is not just how big ships went boom, but how culture, especially institutional military culture, played into the decisions that their admirals made. After all, human beings are not always rational. We are not computers. We carry all this mental baggage, traditions, beliefs, ideals, how we were brought up, how we were raised, what our society expects of us. So when we ask, what were they thinking, you can't just look at facts and logic. You have to look at culture. 
I've made this point multiple times in this podcast, right? Culture affects the way people fight their wars. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about strategy or tactics or doctrine. I'm talking about factors that influence the behavior of leaders, men on the spot, the people making the decisions at the top. Sometimes they might make the logical, rational decision, the one that makes the most sense from our standpoint. But sometimes they might be irrational, reckless, romantic, even suicidal because of what they believed. Sometimes they might even go on a death ride. Today, we'll be talking about a forgotten campaign of the First World War, the last voyage of the East Asia Squadron. We're going to meet the officers and men of two navies, the British Royal Navy and the Imperial German Navy, and watch one chase the other over the world's oceans. We will examine two military traditions and see how these mindsets influence the decision-making of their leaders. And we will witness the climactic battles of Coronel and the Falklands and watch an epic tragedy play out on the cold, salty sea of the South Atlantic. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic voyage on the high seas, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, start the bread machine, take the kids out for a walk, do the thing you need to do. So shovel some coal into the boiler, feel the ocean spray on your face, and aim your 12-inch guns at that blur on the horizon. Because we're going on campaign. June 20th, 1914, was a beautiful day in the Chinese city of Tsingtao. It was one of the strangest cities in the world. It looked like it could have been in the middle of Europe. Brick buildings, slanted wooden roofs, the smell of sausage and coal smoke, even the famous Tsingtao Brewery. Because while Tsingtao might have been a Chinese city, it was also one of the farthest outposts of Kaiser Wilhelm II's German Overseas Empire. And it was also the home station of the Kaiser's crown jewel, the Ostasien Geschwader, the East Asia Squadron. The East Asia Squadron was Germany's only major overseas fleet in 1914. It was small by European standards, its main fighting strength lying in its two armored cruisers, the SMS Scharnhorst and the SMS Gneisenau. Scharnhorst and Gneisenau were some of the most prestigious ships in the German Navy. They had won awards for their gunnery scores and were well known for their elite status. Each ship carried a crew of 840 officers and men, with their heaviest armament being a battery of eight long-range 8.3-inch guns. Two tough, medium-weight ships with elite crews, the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, were the core of the East Asia Squadron. But the East Asia Squadron also contained three light cruisers, the Emden, the Leipzig, and the Nuremberg. Only Emden was in Tsingtao on that sunny morning in June 1914, because both Leipzig and Nuremberg were across the Pacific off the coast of Mexico. The East Asia Squadron's commander was one of the most respected officers in the Kaiser's Navy. Vice Admiral Count Maximilian von Spee was 53 years old, the tallest man in his squadron, with a straight back, strong build, sharp eyes, and a clipped white beard. 
Von Spee was admired and highly competent, and his flagship, the Scharnhorst, was a model of German efficiency. Von Spee's pride and joy were in his fleet, in more ways than one. Both of his sons were officers aboard his squadron. 23-year-old Otto von Spee was aboard Nuremberg, and 20-year-old Heinrich was aboard Gneisenau. Von Spee's best friend and favorite bridge partner was the Gneisenau's commander, Captain Julius Merke. But generally speaking, von Spee hated social interaction, hated diplomacy. He was kind of a loner. He hated social gatherings with other countries' navies, having to go to American, British, and Japanese ports and make nice with their officers. He complained to his wife about how much he hated diplomatic receptions. To my shame, I lied at least 800 times last night. You say, it is my greatest pleasure to meet you. Well, you are thinking how much better it would have been if they had stayed at home. All I can say to that is, I have been there, dude. I feel you. One more thing you need to know about Maximilian von Spee. The German Navy was a recent creation. Kaiser Wilhelm II and his Navy guru, Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz, had built it from practically nothing over the last few decades. It hadn't developed a lot of the traditions or institutional culture of, say, the Prussian army, and most of its officers were middle class, not nobility. But Count Maximilian von Spee was old German nobility. He was a man to whom honor and tradition still meant an awful lot. Someone who might act on those beliefs, instead of on logic, in a tense situation. But there wasn't a lot of tension in the totally normal summer of 1914. The East Asia Squadron was prepping for a three-month tour of Germany's Pacific Island colonies. Fly the flag, make the rounds, show off the Kaiser ships, cruise down to Samoa before heading to New Guinea, and then back to China. Many officers planned to take leave and visit their families in Germany for Christmas once the tour was over, and they were stocking up on exotic gifts for their wives and children. Admiral von Spee, an amateur naturalist, looked forward to studying the birds and plants of the Pacific Islands, and especially, get away from all those diplomats. The officers and men of the East Asia Squadron steamed out of Tsingtao in June 1914, ready for a totally normal summer cruise. Even a weird little bit of news from Europe didn't seem to be a big deal. The Scharnhorst and Gneisenau were steaming south on June 29th when they learned of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. The German sailors said, huh, crazy, shrugged and got back to work. The two ships continued south into the Pacific. Okay, press pause. The men of the East Asian squadron don't know, but we know that World War I is <laughs> literally days away from kickoff. So before we get into the war, we're gonna talk about these ships just a little bit. The navies of World War I mainly consisted of coal-burning, steam-powered steel warships. Oil-burning ships are coming, but only a few of them are in service in 1914. These coal-burning ships were fueled by dozens of shirtless men sweating in the bowels, desperately shoveling coal into the boilers to keep black smoke belching from their massive smokestacks. Big ships went through coal like it was nothing, so they constantly needed to refuel at various stations across the globe. These big warships varied based on three major factors, speed, armament, and armor. With a faster ship, you could chase down a smaller enemy or run away from a bigger one. Bigger guns had longer range, and more guns meant you delivered a heavier blow. And armor determined how many blows you could take. And all this was limited by weight and cost. 
To get big guns and lots of speed, you had to sacrifice armor. To get lots of armor and guns, you might sacrifice speed. You could build one ship that had all three, for instance, the enormous dreadnought battleships that made up the main strength of most navies. But these were super expensive, super costly, and too important to send overseas. The British and German dreadnoughts, for instance, spent 99% of World War I staring at each other across the North Sea. On the other hand, the cruiser was a medium-weight vessel with some armor and some big guns, a supplement to the bigger battleships that could also operate on its own. The armored cruiser was a tough ship that sacrificed speed for heavier armor, a general-purpose ship for all kinds of operations. Both of von Spee's two main ships, the Scharnhorsen and the Gneisenau, were armored cruisers. Light cruisers, like his other ships, Emden, Leipzig, and Nuremberg, were smaller and faster, carrying fewer guns and lighter armor. If any of these cruisers ever went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a dreadnought battleship, it would just be a bad, bad day for them, like a fox terrier attacking a pit bull. But von Spee's cruisers were all faster than the big battleships, so if he ever ran into one, he could just play keep away and make his escape. So the British Admiralty, led by Admiral Sir John Fisher, more on him later, had come up with a ship that could not only defeat, but outrun any German cruiser, something called the Battle Cruiser. Hint, hint, this will be important. The Battle Cruisers, nicknamed Fisher's Greyhounds, were specifically designed to hunt down and sink German cruisers. They were bigger, faster, and tougher. They combined the speed of the cruiser with the firepower of the dreadnought battleship, just they just didn't have as quite as much armor as the big dreadnoughts. So those are the main types of ships you'll see mentioned today. The battleships, big, slow, and dangerous. Cruisers, smaller, faster, less dangerous. Battle cruisers, bigger, faster, with big guns but less armor, are every cruiser's nightmare. Got it? Moving on. One more thing. How did these ships talk to each other? Well, this is the age before radio, but both sides used wireless telegraph to send signals to their ships. But when those failed, they used signal flags, a centuries-old system to send messages over a long distance. Communication is not by radio like in World War II, but by wireless telegraph and signal flags. So these are the battle fleets of World War I. They would spot each other from miles away, by the naked eye or by spotting scope, and maneuver to fire, their big smokestacks belching black soot as sweating men shoveled tons of coal into the boilers. They shot grizzly bear-sized shells at each other over distances up to 14 miles and beyond. And when those shells hit, it was carnage, smoke, shrapnel, screaming, fire, and water. Welcome to 20th century naval warfare. Germany's biggest threat in any naval war, the most likely enemies of von Spee and his East Asia squadron, was the British Royal Navy. See, Germany had an overseas empire like most other European countries in this time period. A little one. By 1914, the German overseas empire consisted of some of the least wanted parts of Africa, a few Pacific islands, and the Chinese city of Tsingtao. Germany came late to the colony game. They came in after all the good bits had been taken, so they got whatever was left. The big problem was that the German Navy was too small to defend all these isolated outposts from the British Empire. If war broke out, it would only take months for the overwhelming force of the Royal Navy to snap up the German colonies. If war ever broke out, every ocean in the world would immediately become hostile territory, and any German ships outside Germany would be in mortal peril. And that included Admiral von Spee's East Asia Squadron. 
As June turned to July, the East Asia Squadron was heading south into the Pacific, unaware that they were about to be orphaned in a dangerous sea. On July 7th, midway through his totally normal Pacific cruise, Von Spee received a message from Berlin. Basically, hey, heads up, something might be going down. Not saying it will, just things aren't looking too great over here. Hmm, maybe not such a normal summer. Von Spee prepared for war. He ordered his scattered light cruisers to grab all the coal and supplies they could find and come link up with them. He stationed the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau in the Pacific islands of Ponape, in what is now Micronesia. They sat there all through July, baking in the sun one day, lashed by tropical storms the next, waiting for news. Europe teetered on the brink of war, and in the isolated Pacific paradise, the Germans monitored their telegraph. The world held its breath, and so did the officers and men of the East Asia Squadron. On August 1st, 1914, Berlin sent out the signal for imminent war. And that was it. Go time. The Scharnhorst and Gneisenau tossed all non-essential belongings off the ship and went on to a war footing. And as they were prepping, messages rolled in. Bad messages. Not great messages. War with Russia. War with France. And, ominously for the officers and men of the East Asia Squadron, war with Britain. The Great War the war to end all wars, had begun. Not the First World War. Not yet. They didn't know there was going to be a second one, so why would they call it the first? By August 6th, Emden and Nuremberg had escorted coal and supply ships to Ponape. Leipzig was on its way. And now, Admiral von Spee had to make a decision. What do I do now? His situation was grim. He and his handful of cruisers were the only German force in the Pacific. They were all alone out here, and they had no safe harbor in the area anymore. The British were already making moves to capture Tsingtao and the German Pacific Islands. So where could von Spee and his ships go? What was their objective? The German High Command had standing orders in place for any ships that happened to be called overseas when the war began. They were to avoid major clashes with British warships, but do as much damage as possible against Allied overseas trade and supply ships. This was called commerce warfare or cruiser warfare, basically guerrilla warfare on the high seas, kind of like what American privateers did during the revolution or Confederate raiders did during the Civil War. The downside was that inevitably, without a safe place to do repairs or get coal, the British Royal Navy would eventually hunt these German ships down and destroy them. So according to this strategy, the cruiser warfare strategy, von Spee should split his force up and scatter to attack British merchant shipping, inflict as much damage as you can before you're inevitably run down and destroyed. But von Spee also had maximum flexibility to command his squadron as he saw fit. The German High Command basically told him, hey, we don't know the situation out there. You are all alone in the middle of the Pacific, surrounded by hostile forces. You are the only force flying the German flag on your half of the world. You're in charge. Do what you think is best. So von Spee decided, rather than split up, to keep his fleet together. Strength in numbers. The German High Command wanted them to do cruiser warfare, but they had given him the wrong tools for it. Cruiser warfare required ships to be fast and dangerous, like his light cruisers, able to get out of any fight that they couldn't win. But his heavy armored cruisers, the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, were too slow for that strategy. 
Savon Spey decided to keep his squadron together. They would do less damage to British shipping, but they would survive longer. This also meant that they would require much larger supplies of coal, since his five warships ate that stuff like it was Girl Scout cookies. But where could they go where superior British forces wouldn't just run them down and pound them to pieces? Where could they go and find sufficient coal for all these ships? The Royal Navy had tons of warships in the Pacific at Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, and if the Japanese joined the war, which they were going to do very shortly, they would have more than enough force to smash von Spee's little squadron. Okay, so where can we go? North, south, east, west. They could go north, try to get back to the home port at Tsingtao. But that's the Japanese Navy, which hasn't declared war on Germany yet, but they're about to. Also, the British Navy in Hong Kong, too dangerous. They could go west. That's the Indian Ocean, which is swarming with British ships. They wouldn't last long before they were hunted down, especially with their slow armored cruisers. Too dangerous. They could go south. That meant Australia and New Zealand. But von Spee knew that the battle cruiser HMS Australia, one of Fisher's Greyhounds, was sitting down there waiting for him. Tangling with a British battlecruiser was, as we've established, a bad idea. It was bigger, faster, and had larger guns with a longer range that would turn them into fish food. Even with the entire East Asia squadron, fighting even one British battlecruiser was way, way too dangerous. Hint, hint. That left East. East meant the vast open stretches of the Pacific, and eventually the west coast of the Americas. There was very little British trade to sink on the west coast of the Pacific, but also very almost no British ships. There were lots of neutral countries where von Spee could buy coal. And if he slipped around the tip of South America, he could go mess up British trade in the Atlantic and maybe, just maybe, get back home to Germany. So east it was. It was the safest, the best opportunity to inflict damage, and it was the only way home. On August 13, 1914, von Spee had a conference with his captains aboard the Scharnhorst. He told them his plans. The German overseas empire was as good as lost. There was nothing their small squadron could do to save it. Their only option was to head east for the west coast of South America. They could refuel, hit British supply convoys, and make a break for home. That was the East Asia Squadron's new goal. They had no other option but to do as much damage as they could before they were tracked down and destroyed, and if they were lucky, fight their way home. Now, if they could do that, fight across most of the world's oceans, a vast space dominated by the British Royal Navy, well, that would be an odyssey, wouldn't it? Worthy of the Greek legends. And if they didn't make it, well, it'd still make a really good story. One of von Spee's captains disagreed with the plan. This was Karl von Mueller of the light cruiser SMS Emden. Von Mueller believed that by splitting off and going on a rampage to the west into the Indian Ocean, he could distract the enemy and tie their forces down looking for him, giving the East Asia squadron an opportunity to escape to the east. His single light cruiser could move much faster than the slow armored cruisers Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, now, even if they were more powerful, and this would give him the opportunity to do maximum damage to British shipping. After thinking it over, von Spee said, okay, von Mueller, you go on with your bad self. You want to take one for the team? Be my guest. <laughs> that very evening, the East Asia squadron sailed east towards the Marshall Islands, but just as they were leaving, the Emden split off. Von Spee wished him well in his final signal, 
the East Asia Squadron turned east across the Pacific, headed for the coast of South America. Captain Von Mueller and the SMS Emden turned west towards the Indian Ocean. Throughout September 1914, Von Mueller and the Emden went on a rampage, doing as much damage as they could. They sank eight steamers off the coast of India, bombarded oil facilities, ambushed and sank a Russian cruiser and a French destroyer, and generally just raised havoc all over the Indian Ocean. Von Mueller and his one little ship sent the Allied High Command into panic mode. Soon the Emden was the most hunted ship in the world. What the Emden was doing wasn't just a commerce raid. Captain Von Mueller and his lone ship were taking part in one of the most storied German military traditions. They were on what was called a death ride. In 1870, during a battle in the Franco-Prussian War, a Prussian cavalry brigade led by General Friedrich von Bredau was ordered to make a charge against a superior enemy force. He obeyed the order, knowing what it meant. Before he charged, von Bredau muttered, Costa es vasis vola. Costa es vasis vola literally translates as, it will cost what it costs, meaning something like, whatever it takes, whatever the cost. Von Bredau's brigade lost over half its strength in the attack, a higher loss rate than the charge of the Light Brigade, but the name for his suicidal charge soon became legendary in German military culture. The Totenritt, the Death Ride. Even though the name was new, the tradition was very old. German culture had a common tradition of the reckless suicidal attack, the way people behave when they know they're doomed, when they know the battle is lost, when the outcome matters less than how you behave as you die. The romance of the death ride invoked Brunhilde's suicide in Wagner's opera, the legends of the apocalyptic wild hunt, or the gothic king Theodoric's last charge against Attila the Hun. And you've seen this. You've seen this, even if you didn't know it at the time. Ever seen a little movie called uh, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King? What is King Theoden shouting as he leads the Rohirrim at the Battle of the Pelennor? Death, death, death. A battle that J.R.R. Tolkien, who knew his Germanic mythology, directly compared to King Theodoric's death ride against Attila the Hun. Or have you ever seen Star Trek and heard of the Kobayashi Maru scenario? An unwinnable situation. A death ride where the outcome matters less than how you conduct yourself. The Totenritt was ancient. The death ride was a reckless, suicidal attack where the why mattered less than the how. A romantic, courageous gesture against a superior opponent. A last act of defiance in the face of near-certain death. But sometimes the pull of the death ride could change how you saw the situation. Maybe the romance pulled you along. Maybe you wanted to be doomed because it made a better story. On November 9th, 1914, Carl von Mueller and the SMS Emden were finally cornered at the Cocos Islands by the stronger Australian cruiser HMAS Sydney. After a brief fight, the burning German ship ran aground on a reef. Captain von Mueller had planned to fight to the end to complete his death ride but in the end, he didn't. He knew it was pointless to keep fighting, and he wanted to save the lives of his crew. His rational brain overcame the Germanic tradition. He surrendered. 
Carl von Mueller and his crew spent the rest of the war in a POW camp on Malta. The Emden's death ride caught everyone's imagination, even her enemies. One British newspaper said that, It is almost in our heart to regret that the Emden has been captured. The war on the sea will lose some of its piquancy, its humor, and its interest now that the Emden is gone. Hear that? They're almost sorry that the Emden was defeated. The British press, like Captain Von Mueller, understood the romance of the death ride. But while the Emden was terrorizing the Indian Ocean, Von Spee had vanished into the vast expanses of the Pacific. And when the British Admiralty finally tracked him down, they would regret it. Admiral Von Spee and the East Asia Squadron would hand the Royal Navy its first defeat in a century. It was 1914, and the Great War was raging. As the East Asia Squadron steamed across the Pacific, trying to find its way home, Europe descended into chaos. Millions of men marched across Belgium, France, Serbia, and Poland, fighting titanic battles with machine guns and modern artillery. Soon the war turned into a stalemate, the hell of trench warfare. As one of the great tragedies of the 20th century unfolded in the blood and mud of the Western Front, the British Admiralty was trying to hunt down Admiral Maximilian von Spee. Britain's first Lord of the Admiralty, the man running the Navy, was someone you might have heard of, a controversial young politician named Winston Churchill. At the outbreak of World War I, 39-year-old Winston was still pretty wet behind the ears and not always popular. Navy officers in particular were not his biggest fans, since Churchill tended to be a micromanager, giving out confusing orders and getting involved in what they considered admiral business. But Churchill had a lot of things to worry about, one of which was the small handful of German ships still at large. In the right place, one German ship could paralyze Britain's trade in any particular region. Just look how much damage the Emden did all on its own. So the British Navy was doing its best to hunt them down, like a man trying to hunt down all the flies in his house. So who was still out there? The SMS Königsberg, trapped on the coast of East Africa. The SMS Emden, as we saw, running around the Indian Ocean. The SMS Karlsruhe near Brazil, the SMS Dresden, which had been in the Caribbean. And of course, there was problem number one, Admiral von Spee's East Asia Squadron. But von Spee had vanished into the Eastern Pacific. He had popped up here and there. The squadron had shown up at Samoa on September 14th and vanished again. On September 22nd, they spooked French Polynesia and briefly bombarded the capital of Papete, sinking one gunboat and then vanished again. The Royal Navy had to be everywhere, but von Spee could hit them anywhere. Churchill had a big map in his office in the Admiralty where he marked the East Asia Squadron's last known location. Every day, his staff drew a bigger circle around that location, showing all the places von Spee could have gone in that time. Winston Churchill stared at that map, wondering, where are you going, Admiral? Where are you going? By October 1914, all signs pointed to South America. And if that was true, the man on the spot 
would be the commander of the South American station, Rear Admiral Sir Christopher Craddock. The British Royal Navy of World War I was the most powerful navy in the world, a position they had held for centuries. Britannia ruled the waves. But the rise of the German navy had posed a challenge they could not ignore. The man who had lit a fire under the Royal Navy's butt in the years before World War I was Admiral Sir John Arbuthnot Fisher, one of my favorite people in military history. If I ever get the chance, I'm totally stealing a chance to just talk about this guy for like 30 minutes. He was a human tornado, big, loud, energetic, religious, a workaholic who made fierce friends and even fiercer enemies. Fisher's reforms prepared the Royal Navy for World War I. He improved sailors' living conditions and their recruitment and training. He got rid of obsolete ships. He introduced new technology like torpedoes and submarines, and new doctrines like advanced gunnery training. And finally, Fisher commissioned the HMS Dreadnought, the revolutionary battleship design that every country imitated. Jackie Fisher brought the Royal Navy kicking and screaming into the modern age. But it was one thing to change the technology. It was another thing to change the men. You can give an old dog new toys, but you can't teach him new tricks. The officers of the Royal Navy had been brought up in a very particular institutional culture and military tradition. And if you looked up Royal Navy tradition in the dictionary, you would find a picture of Rear Admiral Sir Christopher Craddock. Chris Craddock had served 40 of his 52 years, and since he was 12 years old, in the Royal Navy. He had never married, no children, only a little dog named Jack that he always took on voyage with him. Craddock loved the Navy, loved its community, its culture, its traditions. It had been his entire life. He had written three books on Navy tradition, including a book of advice for young officers. Craddock once told someone that he either wanted to die in battle or break his neck on the hunting ground because he also loved to hunt. He was either hunting or he was doing Navy stuff. Those were, those were the two modes of Christopher Craddock. Craddock was reckless, but in the Navy tradition, reckless was good. Royal Navy officers were expected to be bold and daring, like their hero, Admiral Horatio Nelson. The signal Nelson sent to his ships just before the Battle of Trafalgar engage the enemy more closely. That signal was also Chris Craddock's favorite signal. Nelson had been an aggressive, romantic hero, the kind of guy who said stuff like, I don't know, never tell me the odds. Facts and logic? That stuff mattered less than the tradition, the fighting spirit of the Royal Navy. But there was another side of the Royal Navy tradition. You may remember it from October. To encourage the others when Admiral John Bing was tried and executed for not attacking a superior enemy force. And recently, in the opening stages of World War I in August 1914, Rear Admiral Ernest Trubridge had failed to engage a superior German force, and he had been court-martialed for letting them escape. The tradition of encouraging the others of, you know, you're outnumbered, but that's no excuse, was alive and well in the Royal Navy of the First World War. The responsibility of maintaining this tradition sailed to the South Atlantic with Christopher Craddock in August 1914. He had three objectives. First, to chase down the fugitive SMS Dresden, which had fled from the Caribbean down the coast of South America. 
Second, protect British trade. And finally, take up position off the South American tip, the very southern tip, and keep an eye out for von Spee and the East Asia Squadron, who were still at large and just might be coming his way. And Craddock was super not okay with that possibility. The force the Admiralty had given him for this mission was pretty freaking sketch. The Royal Navy's best ships all had things to do. They were all tasked out. So he had gotten whatever was left. Craddock's strongest ships were the armored cruisers HMS Monmouth and HMS Good Hope. Obsolete, poorly divined vessels, crewed by a hodgepodge not of professional sailors, but coast guardsmen and naval reservists. Which was, you know, an enormous contrast to von Spee's modern ships and award-winning crews. The Monmouth's crew included 12 young naval cadets, and the Good Hope, Craddock's flagship, carried the only two heavy guns in the squadron, so he had two heavy guns to von Spee's 16. Craddock also had the ancient battleship HMS Canopus, which was so old that it had been designed with a ram, as in a battering ram, as if it was going to fight the Persians, not the Germans. The Canopus was also amazingly slow. It was ancient. It made barely 12 knots, half the speed of the other ships. It was just the internet explorer of battleships, slower than everything else out there. Craddock also had the armed merchant steamer Otranto, which wasn't even really a warship. It was just an extra set of eyes for scouting, but useless in an actual fight. His only truly battle-ready ship was the light cruiser Glasgow, a regular Navy ship commanded by Captain Henry Luce. The Royal Navy could not have chosen a more mismatched, inexperienced, outgunned squadron to fight von Spee if they had tried. On September 14th, 1914, Craddock's slapped-together squadron was on its way south when he received new orders. The Germans might be headed his way. He needed to prepare a force to deal with von Spee's squadron, and protect British trade in the area, and keep some ships in the Atlantic to look for the fugitive German cruisers Dresden and Karlsruhe. See, old Winston Churchill was trying to micromanage every part of the naval war from London. He gave Craddock orders that were ambiguous, confusing, referred to reinforcements that he never received, and contained several conflicting tasks. When Craddock asked for reinforcements, like, hey, I, I need more ships to do all this, he was turned down. His force was supposedly sufficient to face anything that might come his way. Being outnumbered was no excuse. Churchill also seemed to believe that the HMS Canopus, the Internet Explorer battleship, was some amazing fighting ship, when in reality it was a slow, leaky, rusty piece of junk. So Craddock headed south, growing more worried by the day. Von Spee was out there somewhere, waiting. By October, Craddock was in the Falklands, a pair of cold, grassy little islands off the east coast of Argentina, a British possession that would become a major cause for a war later in the 1980s. But that's not this war. Craddock was still looking for the SMS Dresden, which he assumed had run off into the Pacific and joined up with von Spee somewhere, which was true. That's exactly what Dresden had done. The British were still searching the nooks and crannies of Argentina and Chile when Craddock's orders changed again. First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, told him, It appears that Sean Horsing and Eisenhower are working their way across to South America. You must be prepared to meet them. Canopus should accompany Glasgow, Monmouth, and Otranto, the ships to search and protect trade in combination. 
So this is a great example of poor communication. What does you must be prepared to meet them even mean? Was Churchill ordering Craddock to attack the Germans? That's what Craddock thought. But Churchill was under the impression that the order said to just be prepared, not necessarily fight them. If you'll notice, the order centered on Canopus, the worst battleship ever, and also told Craddock to protect trade as well as look for the Germans, multitasking with crappy ships. While Churchill would defend his orders and his actions after the fact, after everything had gone to hell, he bore at least some responsibility for what was about to happen. Because this is where the traditions of the Royal Navy, that institutional culture and military tradition, became relevant. Admiral Craddock had ambiguous orders that seemed to be telling him to attack. He could interpret them differently, logically, reasonably, or he could disobey them and not fight a battle that he knew he couldn't win. But that flew in the face of his own character and the traditions of the Royal Navy. After all, not too long ago, another admiral in this position, Ernest Truebridge, had failed to engage a superior enemy under ambiguous orders, and he had been court-martialed for it to encourage the others. Craddock told a friend on the Falklands explicitly, I will take care I do not suffer the fate of poor Truebridge. The Royal Navy's strategy of encouraging the others meant that Craddock was feeling pretty encouraged. Captain Luce of the HMS Glasgow said that, Craddock seems to have thought that the Admiralty were pressing him to attack, and his ardent fighting spirit could not brook anything in the nature of defensive strategy. Craddock knew logically, objectively, that his slow, obsolete vessels with their crews of reservists and Coast Guardsmen didn't stand a chance against von Spee's crack squadron, the pride of the German Navy. But he was the product of centuries of Royal Navy tradition, of the glory of Nelson, of the shame of John Bing. Craddock decided, based on the traditions of the service, that there was only one way to interpret his ambiguous orders. If he ran into the East Asia Squadron, he would fight. On October 22nd, Rear Admiral Christopher Craddock took his bargain bin squadron around the tip of South America to go looking for Von Spee. When the ancient Canopus lagged behind, too slow to keep up, Craddock pressed ahead with just the Monmouth, Good Hope, Glasgow, and Otranto. The British squadron steamed north along the coast of Chile, a grab bag of brave little ships looking for their stronger enemy. On the 29th, Glasgow was on a quick errand to the Chilean port of Coronel when it picked up a German signal, identified as coming from the light cruiser Leipzig. So that was it. The enemy was out there. It might just be the Leipzig, one light cruiser, or it could be the entire East Asia squadron. Captain Luce reported Leipzig's presence to Craddock, who decided to move north and hunt for the German cruiser. The morning of November 1st, 1914, dawned bright and warm off the coast of Chile. At 1.30 p.m., Admiral Craddock's squadron spread out in a search pattern. The only thing he knew for certain was that the Leipzig was out there somewhere. The little squadron chuffed north, bucking over the currents of the Pacific. Two obsolete armored cruisers, one light cruiser, and an armed merchantman. The antique battleship Canopus was still 250 miles to the south, struggling to catch up with her decrepit engines. 
Craddock's squadron danced across the waves as the sea grew rougher and the sun slipped across the sky. At 4.20 p.m., Captain Luce spotted a smoke trail to the north, soon identified as belonging to the Leipzig. But not just the Leipzig. The British saw four more ships appear, two of them with four funnels, identifying them as Scharnhorst and Gneisenau. They had found the East Asia Squadron. Yay. Captain Luce remembered. When we saw those four funnels, we knew there was the devil to pay. Von Spee had been dancing across the Pacific since August on his long voyage to the South American coast. He had picked up the light cruiser Dresden, which had been chased out of the Atlantic by Craddock's forces. The East Asia Squadron arrived off the South American coast on October 29th, just in time to learn that a British light cruiser, the Glasgow, had been spotted in Coronel Harbor. The British and the Germans both went to Coronel expecting to fight one enemy light cruiser. The British were looking for the Leipzig, the Germans were looking for the Glasgow. But on the afternoon of November 1st, the two fleets realized, simultaneously, that battle was imminent. Men on both sides shoveled coal, manned their guns, and prayed. Craddock's squadron was obviously outmatched, and he knew it. Unless some sort of miracle happened, this was not a fight he could win. And at this point, the two fleets were far enough apart that he could escape if he wanted to. He could choose to retreat. But he was all that stood between von Spee and the Atlantic, the only unit that could stop the Germans from blasting their way through British commercial shipping. It would be a disaster if von Spee broke out into the Atlantic. And of course, there was the honor and the tradition of the Royal Navy to consider. So at 5 p.m., Craddock ordered his ships to close up into line of battle. It was time to fight. The Battle of Coronel began. The two fleets closed in for battle, two fleets that had traveled across thousands of miles of ocean, only for fate to draw them here. Both squadrons steamed south, the British to the west and the Germans to the east, still out of engagement range. It was late in the day, and the sun was beginning to sink to the west. The British stared across the green-gray water of the South Pacific at the elite squadron of the German Navy, saw their gleaming steel hulls racing through the waves, saw them belching smoke from their funnels. Craddock knew that his only hope was to close with his enemy before sunset. He only had two 9.2-inch guns on the HMS Good Hope to match the equivalent 16 8.3-inch guns on Scharnhorst and Gneisenau. Two heavy guns versus 16 heavy guns. The British had to close the distance where their smaller 6-inch guns could get a shot on the Germans. They would have to run through a gauntlet of fire to get that close. But if they could do it quickly and do it soon, the light of the setting sun might blind the German gunners. It was their only chance. At 6.18 p.m., Craddock ordered Monmouth and Good Hope, his two obsolescent, poorly manned armored cruisers, to increase speed. The two British ships turned towards the Germans to do as Nelson had done, to engage the enemy more closely. Craddock sent his last recorded message. I am going to attack the enemy now. And then Rear Admiral Sir Christopher Craddock began his death ride. But Von Spee knew what his opponent was trying to do, and he wasn't going to play that game. 
As Craddock's two cruisers lurched across the water trying to close the range, the Germans pulled away, keeping their distance. The sun was setting. Craddock's sailors shoved coal into the boilers. The two British ships belched steam, straining to make as much speed as they could. I imagine Craddock sitting on his bridge, his little dog Jack at his side, cane in his hands, watching the German ships in the distance. Almost there, almost there, we're close, get closer, almost there. Then, at 6.50 p.m., the sun set, and Craddock was out of time. When the sun vanished behind the horizon, the German cruisers were now nearly invisible against the Chilean coast to the east, but Craddock's ships were silhouetted against the sunset to the west. It was a gunner's wet dream. Winston Churchill wrote afterwards, And now began the saddest naval action in the war. Of the officers and men in both the squadrons that faced each other in these stormy seas so far from home, Nine out of ten were doomed to perish. The British were to die that night, the Germans a month later. Now the Germans closed the range. At 7.04 p.m., the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau opened fire. The German crews had won awards for their gunnery before the war, and they never performed better than the evening of Coronel. Orange flashes rippled out from the shadowed ships. The first salvos landed 500 yards short, the second landed 500 yards over. They had the range. 16 250-pound shells flew over the roaring waves and smashed into their targets. Soon both British ships were covered in flame, mixing with the smoke and sea into a chaotic blur of blue, black, and orange. Craddock's flagship, the Good Hope, had her forward turret blown off, sending men and bits of metal smashing into the South Pacific. Still, the British charged forward, trying to close the distance. The Germans fired one salvo after another, every 20 seconds, like the drum roll at a funeral. Craddock's reservists and coast guardsmen, shooting at nearly invisible targets, these poor guys who a few months ago were still in their civilian jobs, managed a couple of hits in return. But these did minimal damage, and the British ships took one direct hit after another, armor-piercing explosive shells hammering into their burning hulls. But they kept coming, trying to close the distance. As the range grew closer, the German fire grew even deadlier. Gneisenau targeted Monmouth, punching her again and again and again until she finally slid to a halt, a battered smoking ruin. But Admiral Craddock continued his charge aboard HMS Good Hope, heading straight for Von Spee's Scharnhorst, like even if he couldn't hit her, he was going to ram her. The British flagship blazed like a rocket, German shells ripping away at her every minute, the smoke red from her funnels, her upper deck a mass of wreckage and blood. Finally, Scharnhorst and Gneisenau fired at point-blank range, and the Good Hope slowed to a stop at around 7.50 p.m., then, as the British and German onlookers watched in horror and amazement, the front of the Good Hope exploded. The detonation tore off her entire bow, hurling metal and men into the air. What was left of the ship began to roll over, and somehow, and this is wild, her gunners fired two more blind, furious volleys at their opponents, one last show of defiance. The last of the light faded from the November sky. The flames of the burning wreck disappeared in the darkness. The HMS Good Hope 
Admiral Christopher Craddock, and his faithful dog Jack were never seen again. Captain Luce aboard Glasgow was able to hide in the darkness. He slipped away from the German fire, but then came across the Monmouth, which had somehow survived and was trying to get underway again. But there was nothing Luce could do. I felt that I could not help her, but must be destroyed with her if we remained. With great reluctance, I therefore turned to the northwest and increased to full speed. As Luce and the Glasgow sailed away, his men heard the Monmouth's crewmen cheering. Cheering? Included in those cheers were the voices of the 12 naval cadets. At 8.35 p.m., the German cruiser Nuremberg closed in on the listing-stricken Monmouth. The Germans offered the British a chance to surrender, but they refused. Incredibly, the wrecked, burning Monmouth started her engines up, turned about, and tried to ram the German ship. The Nuremberg pulled away and fired the coup de grace. The Monmouth heeled and finally capsized, slipping beneath the waves at 8.58. With that, darkness covered the Pacific Ocean, and the Battle of Coronel was over. The irony is that on November 3rd, Churchill sent Craddock an order, like, hey dude, I might have been unclear, uh, I don't actually want you to go attack Von Spee. That would be silly, you wouldn't do that, right? But Churchill was already speaking into the void. Coronel was the British Navy's greatest defeat in over a century. Both Monmouth and Good Hope had been lost with all hands, no survivors. 1,660 British sailors, including Admiral Craddock. Only three German sailors had even been wounded. It was one of history's most one-sided battles, an absolute curb stomp, a battle that did not have to happen. Based on logic, reason, and objective fact, it was a battle that Craddock never should have fought. But he had done what he felt he was ordered to do, and what he felt the traditions of his service and the honor of his nation, his military culture, had demanded. Captain Luce aboard the Glasgow gathered up a Tranto and Canopus and retreated all the way back to the Atlantic. One of Glasgow's officers said, We were humiliated to the very depths of our beings. We hardly spoke to one another. We felt so bitterly ashamed of ourselves, for we had let down the king. We had let down the admiralty. We had let down England. What would the British people think of the Royal Navy? The crew of the HMS Glasgow were having a major case of survivor's guilt. And they were right to wonder what the British people would think. Cornell shocked the British nation. Yes, it had been a relatively minor battle out on the fringes of the Empire. Yes, they only lost a couple of obsolete cruisers commanded manned by reservists. The material impact of Coronel was almost minimal. It didn't really even put a dent into the Royal Navy's strength. But the Royal Navy had seemed so invincible for as long as anyone had been alive. And now that reputation was tarnished. Change the sign, boys. We just went from 100 years without a naval defeat to zero. But the Royal Navy would not take Coronel lying down. They wanted revenge. Revenge for Craddock, revenge for his men, and revenge for the honor of the Royal Navy. And in one month, they would have it. And in one month, Admiral von Spee would go on his death ride.
Two days after the Battle of Coronel, the German East Asia Squadron arrived in the Chilean harbor of Valparaiso. The surprisingly large German community in Chile turned out to cheer them and celebrate their victory. All the German sailors were thrilled with their triumph, all except one. Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spee refused to celebrate. When some jerkwad at a party proposed a toast of damnation to the Royal Navy, von Spee gave him a cold, withering glare and raised his glass instead to the memory of a brave and gallant enemy. Drank and left. He was barely five feet out the door before a woman was trying to hand him a bouquet of flowers. His only response was, They will do nicely for my grave. Gee, I wonder why this guy has no friends. Now, Von Spee had always hated crowds and parties, but he was somber for other reasons. They had won, yes, they had won a battle, but the East Asia Squadron had expended half their ammunition at Coronel. Unlike Cole, he couldn't pick up ammunition in any old place. The CVS pharmacy was fresh out of 8.2-inch armor-piercing shells, and he knew the Royal Navy would be upset with him, and they would stop at nothing to wipe his squadron out. Soon von Spee received new orders. The High Command said that with the Royal Navy closing in, his best bet was to make a break for Germany. You've done your part, man. Your officers and men are heroes. Now bring it in. Get your guys home by Christmas. The Kaiser told him, hey, we have awarded you the Iron Cross First Class, 300 more Iron Crosses for your squadron, but you have to come back home so we can give them to you. On November 26, the East Asia Squadron set sail towards the tip of South America. They rounded Cape Horn and entered the South Atlantic on December 1st, passing icebergs and watching penguins dance on the coast of Tierra del Fuego. The next morning, Von Spee ordered a halt in the South Atlantic to coal and plan his next move. He popped on board Gneisenau for a game of bridge with his best friend, Captain Merke, and to visit his son Heinrich. If time was of the essence, he wasn't acting like it. Then, on December 6th, Von Spee announced that he intended to attack the Falkland Islands. The lonely British outpost was reportedly undefended, and Von Spee wanted to destroy the wireless station and maybe capture some coal. Basically, yeah, we're going home, but we might as well get one last punch in on our way out the door. But most of Von Spee's captains thought this was a terrible idea. His best friend, Captain Merriker, said, look, boss, this is an unnecessary detour. We don't need to do this. We're pushing our luck. Let's break out into the Atlantic and head home. But Von Spee was determined to do one last bit of damage and could not be persuaded otherwise. Guys, it'll be fine. We get in, smash some stuff up, we get out. In and out. 20 minute adventure. Too easy, right? Historians have tried to understand this decision. Even Kaiser Wilhelm, in his diary, wondered what compelled von Spee to attack the Falkland Islands. Hubris, overconfidence, stress, maybe it just seemed like a good idea at the time. But there was also... culture. Von Spee had been fatalistic, gloomy, ever since Coronel. He had told the German woman that those flowers would do nicely on his grave. In the days after Coronel, he told a friend in Chile, I am quite homeless. I cannot reach Germany. 
We possess no other secure harbor. I must plow the seas of the world, doing as much mischief as I can, until my ammunition is exhausted, or a foe far superior in power succeeds in catching me. Von Spee knew the strength of the Royal Navy, and he knew how far he was from home. And I think seeing Admiral Craddock's death ride did something to his mind. Even though his new mission was to reach Germany, to get home, I think some part of him believed that they would never make it. Was Von Spee's decision to attack the Falklands rational? Maybe he thought so. But maybe, just like Christopher Craddock, he allowed his institutional traditions and military culture to impact his decision-making, to cloud his judgment. Because sometimes when German officers believed that they were doomed, they looked back to their traditions to see how men behaved when all was lost. Sometimes they thought of a death ride. December 8th, 1914. The Falklands lay dark and silent as Admiral von Spee and the East Asia Squadron approached from the south. At 5.30 a.m., Captain Merker broke off and took the Gneisenau and Nuremberg on their raid towards the dark masses to the north. The Admiral stayed back on board Scharnhorst along with Leipzig and Dresden to act as a covering force. The German ships sailed through the early morning gloom towards the Falklands. The bridge crews scanned the islands with their binoculars. The main harbor of Port Stanley was concealed from their approach by the landmass by the hills of East Falkland, so they couldn't tell whether there were ships in the harbor or not. But as they got closer, the German observers were able to make out a plume of smoke. Then two. Then the masts of warships behind the hills. Okay, that's not good. That's actually pretty bad. The Falklands are supposed to be undefended. Then Captain Merker's gunnery officer spotted something worse. Hey boss, uh, I see a tripod mast. Something is in there. Something big. Captain Merka was like, come on, man, that's nonsense. Tripod masts mean capital ships. The British don't have any capital ships in the South Atlantic. Then, at 9.20 a.m., a pair of shells exploded a thousand yards away. Big shells. Heavy caliber gunfire. The Germans veered away from the islands, and when he got Captain Merker's report, Von Spee said, okay, shut it down, call off the attack. This is supposed to be a quick raid on undefended islands, not a battle with the British squadron. The Germans had kicked a hollow stump that turned out to be hold a hornet's nest. Yep, it's time to get the heck out of Dodge. You can imagine Captain Merker shaking his head like, man, I told him this was a bad idea. I told him the East Asia Squadron linked back up and headed southeast. All right, new plan. Let's go home. But it wasn't that easy. Behind Von Spee's squadron, the British were in pursuit. The Germans raised their binoculars, trying to identify the British ships chasing them. Commander Hans Polkhammer of the Gneisenau remembered. Two vessels soon detached themselves from our pursuers. They seemed much faster and bigger than the other enemy ships, as their smoke was thicker, wider, more massive. All glasses were turned upon their hulls. It took a moment to make the enemy ships out, and then the Germans realized they were being chased by two battle cruisers, 
Fisher's Greyhounds, ships specifically designed to hunt down German cruisers, bigger, faster, deadlier, tougher than anything in the East Asia squadron. Pakama remembered. The probability that we were being chased by English battle cruisers. This was a very bitter pill for us to swallow. We choked a little. The throat contracted and stiffened, for it meant a fight ending in an honorable death. A few hours ago, the Germans had been looking forward to getting home by Christmas, getting home to their families. But von Spee's gamble, his raid on the Falklands, had delivered them into the belly of the beast. It was only sheer bad luck that von Spee encountered the British battle cruisers at all. See, the disaster at Coronel started the blame game back in Britain. Some people blamed Admiral Craddock for attacking that when he knew he was outmatched. But most people blamed the Admiralty, first for not giving Craddock sufficient force to fight his enemy, and then giving him ambiguous instructions that made him feel compelled to fight. A lot of this blame fell on the first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. Churchill, during and after the war, tried to place the blame on Craddock, but he bore significant responsibility for what had taken place. There was only one way to recover the Admiralty's reputation, to find von Spee and freaking end him. And the man who would bring the hammer down was Sir John Arbuthnot Fisher, the great Royal Navy reformer, who had been pulled out of retirement to take up the post of First Sea Lord. He set to work with his usual hurricane energy. The ancient battleship Canopus and Henry Luce's HMS Glasgow were the two warships that had escaped the disaster of Coronel. Fisher didn't consider Canopus worth the coal it took to power her, so he ordered the old ship beached in Port Stanley Harbor to serve as a static gun battery in the Falklands. He ordered Glasgow back to the South American coast to await reinforcements. As for those reinforcements, Fisher decided there was no kill like overkill. When Churchill proposed sending a battle cruiser, even one of which would probably be enough to deal with von Spee, Fisher said, nah, we're sending two. He chose the HMS Invincible and HMS Inflexible to go south and blow von Spee out of the water. The task force would be commanded by Vice Admiral Frederick Sturdy, a short bulldog-like officer who had been Churchill's secretary when the war began. Sturdy moved fast, burning coal across 7,000 miles of open ocean, from England down to South America. He arrived on November 26th and took command of the task force assembling off the coast of Brazil. Sturdy planned to spend a few days resting his men and refitting for the voyage, but Captain Luce of the HMS Glasgow, one of the survivors of Coronel, told him that they should sail, no, sail now. He was worried for the undefended Falklands, but I think... Luce and the whole crew of the Glasgow also had survivor's guilt from seeing Admiral Craddock's gallant death and not being able to save him, not being able to save the stricken Monmouth. Sturdy said, bro, we're, we're leaving in a few days. Chillax. But Luce insisted, please, sir, let's go now. Not a minute to lose. Sturdy gave in. Very well, Luce. We'll sail tomorrow. So it was that on December 7th, 1914, Sturdy and his squadron arrived in the Falkland Islands. In a way, Captain Luce had inadvertently ensured that Admiral Craddock would be avenged. Without his intervention, the German raid would have found the Falklands undefended. The British wouldn't have been there. If Sturdy had sailed even a day later, von Spee would have slipped right past him. 
one of those funny little coincidences in war. A second funny coincidence? Sturdy and his captains expected to be searching the coasts of South America for months, trying to hunt von Spee down. They never dreamed that the Germans would come to them. On the morning of December 8th, the battle cruisers were busy coaling. One of the British ships had her engine disassembled for maintenance. Another had her fires out to clean the boiler. If von Spee had come in with his entire squadron just guns blasting that morning, he would have caught Sturdy's squadron completely by surprise. It would have made Coronel look like a paper cut. But von Spee didn't know there were any ships at the Falklands at all. And German intelligence reports that two British battle cruisers had been sent south had not reached him. Poor communication kills. When the Germans appeared off the Falklands on December 8, 1914, they were spotted by a few civilian lookouts. And the first shots of the Battle of the Falkland Islands were fired by, irony of ironies, the 12-inch guns of the beached Canopus, the internet explorer of battleships that was only useful as a shore battery. These shots were what had panicked Captain Merker and caused him to call off his raid. Admiral Sturdy was in the middle of shaving when his officers came rushing in, saying, The Germans are here! Sturdy said, Send them in to breakfast, and continued shaving. Soon enough, two battle cruisers, three armored cruisers, and one light cruiser, Captain Luce's Glasgow, steamed out of Port Stanley. Admiral Sturdy sat in his flagship, HMS Invincible, watching calmly as his ships chased the East Asia squadron, like a wolf tracking a wounded deer. It was a perfect day, not a cloud in the sky. The cold blue Atlantic was clear and calm, save for the big steel ships plowing through the open ocean. The German ships went as fast as they could, but von Spee's ships could only make 21 knots max. The fast, deadly battle cruisers behind them were working up to 25. They were gaining. It wasn't a question of if the British would catch them, but when. By 12.55 p.m., the two battle cruisers had closed the range. Their big 12-inch guns boomed, and a handful of 850-pound shells screamed across the water to straddle the rearmost German ship, the light cruiser Leipzig. Von Spee looked back to see the battle cruisers coming, two steel giants slicing their way across the water. He saw Leipzig struggling to keep up, the massive geysers of water from the British fire inching closer. It was only a matter of time. He could keep running, maybe keep his distance until nightfall would ensure his escape. He could escape, but this would mean sacrificing Leipzig. Or he could accept battle against an overwhelming force, knowing the inevitable outcome. Von Spee made the choice his military culture and noble lineage demanded. Orders went out at 1.20 p.m. Sean Horst and Gneisenau will accept action. Light cruisers are to part company and try to escape. The German light cruisers split up and ran like hell, pursued by the British cruisers, Captain Luce's Glasgow out front, eager to avenge Admiral Craddock. Von Spee and Captain Merker swung their ships around into the path of the British battle cruisers. It was a fight they could not win, and they knew it. Two armored cruisers versus two battle cruisers, like fox terriers attacking pit bulls. Vice Admiral Count Maximilian von Spee began his death ride. The Battle of the Falkland Islands was almost a replay of Coronel, but the situation was reversed. Now von Spee was in the same position Craddock had been, 
outranged, outgunned, needing to engage the enemy more closely. Sturdy and his two battle cruisers were the ones keeping their distance, trying to engage the Germans at ranges where they couldn't respond. Both sides fired as they maneuvered, their steel hulls slicing across the glass-like surface of the ocean. Von Spee did try once to break contact and escape, but Sturdy chased him down and the battle resumed. The Germans had an advantage. The wind blew the British ship's own funnel smoke into their faces, obscuring their line of sight. Sturdy tried to maneuver out of the smoke, but the obscuration allowed von Spee to close the distance. The award-winning German gunnery told once again, the German cruisers plastered HMS Invincible with shells. One of them sheared off the tip of a British gun barrel. Another split the armor and crashed into the mess deck. A British officer remembered, I have never seen heavy guns fired with such rapidity and such control. Flash after flash traveled down their sides from bow to stern, all their 5.9-inch and 8.2-inch guns reverberating after every salvo. In contrast, the British gunnery was almost embarrassing. Their 12-inch shells only managed a few hits on the German ships, while the Germans hit the British many times. But when Sturdy finally managed to get clear of the smoke at 3.30 p.m., he had his first clear line of sight on the German ships. The fire between the four ships reached a massive crescendo, the sea vibrating with the concussions of cannon blasts, every vessel wreathed in flame. The superior German gunners hit their targets again and again and again, but it didn't matter. The smaller 250-pound German shells barely did any damage. But the 850-pound British shells tore Scharnhorst and Gneisenau to pieces. Freight train-sized barrages hammered into them one after another. Von Spee's flagship was a burning ruin, riddled with holes, full of dying men. One British officer said, She was being torn apart and was blazing, and it seemed impossible that anyone on board could still be alive. Seeing the condition of the Scharnhorst, Captain Merker feared the worst. He signaled, Is the Admiral dead? Von Spee replied, No, I am all right so far. Have you hit anything? The two officers discussed the situation as their ships were torn apart beneath them. Finally, Von Spee remembered that Merker had said this whole thing was a bad idea. Von Spee admitted to his old friend, You were right after all. Shell after shell hammered into the twisting, burning German flagship. The Scharnhorst fought for half an hour until, at 4 p.m., she stopped firing. Wrecked, broken, the remnant of a warship coasting on the cold Atlantic. There was silence. Then Admiral Sturdy raised a signal, offering Scharnhorst a chance to surrender. And von Spee had his chance. Would he surrender? It had been an amazing journey across the Pacific, into the Atlantic, from China to South America, four months of being hunted across the world's oceans. His ships and his men had done more than anyone could have asked. They had fought more than enough to satisfy their honor. He could surrender. It could be over. There was no logical reason to keep fighting. No logical reason. But von Spee ignored Sturdy's offer. He didn't hear no bell. The dying flagship of the East Asia Squadron, the ocean seeping in through the gashes in her hull, her funnels shot away, her upper decks a burning, twisted mass of metal, turned to face her nemesis. Von Spee sent one last signal to Merker, 
telling him to escape if he could. Then the Sharn horse summoned her last ounces of strength and charged at her enemy, a reckless, futile assault. Who knows what the scene was like on the bridge as Von Spey, surrounded by fire and water, finished his death ride. Maybe he said something. Something like, Costa es, vasis vola. Cost what it will. The British opened fire. At 4.15 p.m., the Sharn horse rolled over, her propellers slashing away at the cold waters of the South Atlantic. The SMS Sharn horse, pride of the Kaiser's navy, went down with all hands. Captain America's Gneisenauk lasted 90 more minutes, taking hit after hit that somehow failed to sink her. She fought hard, striking Invincible more than once. One officer remembered, The men with their powder-blackened faces and arms went calmly about their duties in a cloud of smoke that grew even denser as the firing intensified. Unrecognizable corpses were simply cast to one side. The walls splashed with blood and brains. The British battlecruisers closed in, shooting at point-blank range. At this point, it wasn't a battle, it was an execution. At 5.50 p.m., the Gneisenau began to roll over. Captain Merka and his survivors gave three cheers for the Kaiser, sang a chorus of Deutschland Alles, then abandoned ship. Admiral Sturdy put the British sailors at attention, and they watched with silent respect as Gneisenau sank. The British managed to rescue only 176 survivors of her 800-man crew. Captain Merka and Lieutenant Heinrich von Spee were not among them. They joined their friend and father at the bottom of the Atlantic. The battle wasn't quite over. To the south, the British were chasing the German light cruisers down. The armored cruiser HMS Kent caught the SMS Nuremberg, which sank with only seven survivors. Otto von Spee, the third member of his family to die that day, was not among them. Captain Henry Luce, aboard the Glasgow, worked with the HMS Cornwall to catch the cruiser Leipzig. After a short-running fight, Leipzig sank at 9.23 p.m., 80 miles southeast of the Falklands, with only 18 survivors. The only German warship to survive was the SMS Dresden, which managed to get away in the darkness. The Battle of the Falkland Islands was over. One of the HMS Kent's crewmen summed up the last fight of Nuremberg with a phrase that could have stood for every ship and man at the battles of both Coronel and the Falklands. The enemy fought splendidly, but were outclassed. The Battle of the Falklands was the last major overseas naval battle of the First World War. The East Asia Squadron was destroyed. The British had avenged Admiral Craddock and were once again rulers of the waves. They lost 10 killed and 19 wounded, with some damage to their ships. In contrast, they had sunk four German ships, killed 1,871 German sailors, and taken 215 survivors from the ocean. 90% of the men on those four ships had died in the Falklands. The SMS Dresden managed to play cat and mouse until she was cornered by Captain Luce's Glasgow on March 14, 1915. Her captain, Fritz Ludica, surrendered after scuttling his ship. He and most of his crew survived to go into POW camps, which was more than could be said for any other ship of the East Asia Squadron. The Dresden was the last German ship still at large. 
the Kaiser's navy had been swept from the world's oceans. Germany would continue to wage war on the high seas, but they would be fighting under the water with U-boats, not above it. Von Spee's defeat at the Falklands was not just the end of one of the most epic voyages in human history. It was the end of the Kaiser's dream of an overseas German empire. But it was not the end of the death ride. In the last days of the war, when everything seemed to be lost for Germany, Admiral Reinhard Scheer of the High Seas Fleet ordered his dreadnought battleships in the German dockyards to prepare for battle. They were going to go out and fight the British to the death. It was a battle they could not win, and he knew it, but he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory for the pride and honor of the German Navy. But the sailors of the High Seas Fleet refused to be part of Admiral Scheer's death ride. They launched a mutiny, and this mutiny spread across Germany, ultimately causing the collapse of the Kaiser's government and the end of the First World War. The working-class sailors of the German Navy refused to take part in this ancient military ritual, refused to hear the siren song of the Totenritt. Germany refused to take the death ride in 1918. But in 1945, Germany went down fighting in World War II, fighting to the bitter end, long after any hope of victory. As Brunhilde had done, as King Theodoric had done, as General von Bredau had done, as Admiral von Spee had done. Von Spee had taken his squadron on the death ride. Adolf Hitler took an entire nation. In 2019, the shattered wreck of the SMS Scharnhorst was finally discovered in the South Atlantic. She lies there to this day along with 1,871 German sailors, including Maximilian von Spee and his two sons. They fought to the end, not because they had to, but because they chose to. Costa es, vas es vola. Cost what it will. But to the von Spee family, and the families of hundreds of German sailors who would not make it home for Christmas, the cost had been very high indeed. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? All right, y'all, that was a crazy journey, right? Who enjoyed it? Raise show of hands, who wants to get off Mr. Von Spee's wild death ride? Okay, so this is an amazing dramatic story. I did not have to add anything at all to make this a melodramatic soap opera of naval warfare in the age of steam. The men of the British and German navies added all the drama on their own. And that was kind of my point today. There are plenty of military lessons to draw from the last voyage of the East Asia Squadron, from the battles of Coronel and the Falklands. Both sides suffered from poor communication and poor intelligence gathering throughout the campaign. Both sides ended up fighting battles they couldn't win against deadlier and more modern ships. None of these battles, with the outcome, if you match up one side versus the other, none of these battles is really a surprise how things ended up. But as I made very clear, neither battle, Coronel or the Falkland Islands, had to happen. The reason they happened the way they did, the reason this entire story unfolded the way it did, can be boiled down to culture, tradition, beliefs, values, ideals. This was a story of the First World War, and as a campaign, it had a significant impact on the naval aspect of that war. 
When von Spee's squadron was defeated, it was the last major force of fugitive German vessels on the high seas of the world's oceans. For the rest of the war, the Imperial German Navy would be pretty much limited to the North Atlantic. The power of the Royal Navy closed off the world's shipping lanes to Germany, and this was a major factor in its ultimate defeat. But this was not just a story of World War I. Because the Royal Navy tradition and the Germanic military tradition long predated the drama of 1914, and the Germanic tradition of the death ride continued to affect people's decision-making long afterwards. I started this episode talking about Adolf Hitler, of all people, and why he and most of Germany chose to keep fighting even after the war was very obviously lost. Well, based on what we learned today, we can understand this impulse a little bit more. The legend of the Death Ride, the mythology of the Totenritt, rang something deep in the German cultural spirit. Von Spee became a hero after his death in the Falklands. He was not criticized for his hubris, for his overconfidence in launching the raid that destroyed his squadron. He was honored for living up to the German military ideal, an ideal that Germany carried out to the bitter end in 1945. Some Germans didn't. But a whole heckin' lot of them did. Enough of them did to call World War II in Europe the greatest of all the Germanic death rides. Another piece of fun trivia, Nazi Germany's navy, the Kriegsmarine, had a heavy cruiser named after von Spee. The KMS Admiral Graf Spee was ironically caught away from German waters when World War II began, was cornered and sunk off the coast of South America. I know I say that history doesn't repeat itself, but there are exceptions. Culture affects the way people fight their wars. That is my mantra. Both Christopher Craddock and Maximilian von Spee were the product of military cultures and traditions that affected their decision-making. There were times when they made rational decisions, and then there were times when they turned their brains off and let their cultural, romantic, traditional subconscious take over, behaving the way they were supposed to behave, the way that Craddock as a Royal Navy officer and von Spee as a German aristocrat had been brought up their entire lives to behave. See, humans don't always act logically or rationally, not in the past or the present, and they won't in the future. We like to think that we do. Of course, we like to think that we are the rational ones, but all of us have beliefs, values, ideals, some aspects of culture and tradition that affect the decisions we make. We may not recognize it sometimes, but it's there. So before we judge Craddock and von Spee too harshly, we should take a quick look in the mirror. Now we could ask, what about their responsibility to their men? Von Spee's responsibility to his sons? And I think that's a good question. We can judge them for that. But then I think of the HMS Monmouth's crew cheering, right down to the naval cadets as their ship sank, or the Gneisenau's crew singing their national anthem as their ship capsized. Maybe the sailors were more on board with this whole thing than we might imagine. They were part of the culture too. The officers and sailors, generals and soldiers of World War I, followed their cultures and traditions to their deaths, as have countless men and women all throughout history. We might think it was foolish. We might think it was dumb. We might think it was crazy. But we can't deny that they believed it. And when it was time to go on the Totenrit, they didn't look back. 
Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they were afraid of what they might see. So when we ask, what were they thinking? That's not the right question. To go on the death ride, you had to stop thinking at all. Thank you so, so much for listening today, and thank you for your continued support. I hope you love today's episode, even if pretty much everyone died. Sorry, that's just how the cookie crumbles sometimes. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, and make sure you tell them if there's a dangerous battle fleet headed their way. If you don't, tell your enemies, but be a good sport and pick up any survivors when their ship sinks. If you want my sources, a very useful map, some images, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always want feedback. Drop me a line, anything. I will respond in record time. No question is too small. No comment is too tiny. I want to hear it all. We've only got seven more full-length episodes left until the end of the season. Check back, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.